This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to a special episode of The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. This week marks the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Nearly 3,000 people died that day after planes crashed into the World Trade Center towers in Lower Manhattan, into the Pentagon, and into a field in rural Pennsylvania. At the Times Union, many of us are reminded of this daily. The front page of the September 12, 2001 edition hangs on the wall in the hallway just outside the newsroom. Its large, bold lettering broadcasts the headline, Freedom Under Siege. Beneath it, the haunting image of United Airlines Flight 175 just a split second before it crashed into the South Tower. Most Americans alive today know the story of what happened. Anyone who was at least of school age when it happened likely recalls some part of their experience of that day, if not entirely in vivid detail. I was in Manhattan that day. Thankfully, I was safe, miles north of Ground Zero on the Upper West Side. But the memory of the deafening wail of ambulances and fire trucks speeding down Amsterdam Avenue, the memory of standing on the Upper West Side rooftop of a school building with a group of students, watching the thick black smoke from the towers slowly erasing the bright blue sky, all of these memories, for me, they still feel fresh, even a generation later. And I'm not alone. On this episode of The Eagle, you'll hear from Times Union writers and local residents about their reflections of that day and the significance of 20 years passing. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Before we discuss the anniversary of 9-11, let's take a quick look at some of the headlines that appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. For that, I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. So let's start off with the fact that Nexium co-founder Nancy Salzman was finally sentenced in a Brooklyn courtroom this week. She was sentenced to three and a half years in prison, but tell us more. Yeah, Nancy Salzman, who was really Keith Raniere's top lieutenant within Nexium. Raniere, of course, was known as Vanguard and 
uh, Nancy Salzman was given the title of prefect as uh, his second in command. And yes, on Wednesday, our uh, outstanding cops and courts reporter, Rob Gavin, was in the federal courtroom in Brooklyn, where she was sentenced to three and a half years in prison, plus an additional three years of supervised release after her incarceration ends. And uh, she'll also have to pay a fine of $150,000. Nancy Salzman was really present at the creation, as they say, of Nexium and its various uh, tentacles, and was identified in testimony as Rhaenyra's really uh, top acolyte and uh, his most relentless enforcer. She organized a lot of the legal efforts to go after Nexium apostates and critics, including Rick Ross, a culty programmer. Um, she admitted to juking video evidence uh, in some of their their legal efforts and really going after enemies in fairly ruthless ways. Several of those Nexium critics who were targeted by the organization spoke at the sentencing, uh, as well as uh, several who were involved in blowing the whistle on what was going on in Nexium a couple of years ago, which led to it becoming the target of a federal investigation, which led to her being indicted on federal charges along with Ranieri. Of course, Ranieri is now out in a federal prison in Arizona facing a sentence that will not end until after his natural life. But Salzman really is the last of the major defendants. I think only only one more remains to be sentenced, and that's Kathy Russell, who was a bookkeeper with the organization. So this, in a sense, really kind of rings down the curtain on the you know the major prosecutions of, of Nexium leaders. Wow, it's really remarkable uh, seeing how the years have passed and how far this story has come. Now, of course, we'll have more on this on our sister podcast, Nexium on Trial. So check that out wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, also, on the law beat this week, it was kind of a double whammy in court for former Cuomo aide Joe Percoco and former SUNY Poly president Elaine Calieros. Can you tell us what happened to them this week? Yeah, also Wednesday, and this happened really as Nancy Salzman was uh, was about to learn her sentence, we learned that a federal appeals court, the uh, Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, handed down a decision rejecting Calieros' challenge to his conviction. And then in a separate decision, they rejected a similar appeal brought by Joe Prococo. Now, these two men formally held great power within the state. Calieros, who was a physicist, was really the um, the visionary who helped create, you know, what was originally called SUNY Polytechnic Institute. And especially under Governor Andrew Cuomo, he became sort of the point man for expanding nanotechnology uh, really across upstate in sort of this necklace of high-tech centers reaching all the way out to Buffalo and including facilities in in Utica and elsewhere. And of course, it all came crashing down in 2016, I believe, was when the investigation came to light. Calieros, along with a, a group of executives uh, were charged with wire fraud. 
they were convicted. Uh, Calieros faces a sentence of three and a half years. Joe Prococo had dealings with many of these same executives. He was convicted of taking bribes uh, when he was working as Governor Andrew Cuomo's, uh, one of his top aides, certainly his most trusted confidant and another, another enforcer. And he is already in prison. He, he is uh, midway through almost uh, a sentence of six years. Well, more on that in our Capital Confidential section on timesunion.com. Moving on to the city of Albany, where uh, the federal stimulus money is going to go to bump the pay of unionized and non-union workers. Can you tell us more about that story? Correct. This is sort of the first thing that Mayor Kathy Sheehan has announced this money will be spent spent on. We're talking about a pool of, of $81 million. Of course, a lot of that is going to go to plug the hole in, uh, or holes, plural, in uh, the city's budget uh, resulting from the economic downturn brought on by the pandemic. But we now learn that about $3.7 million of that sum is going to go to give city workers, both unionized and non-unionized, as you noted, raises that work out to uh, about $2 for each hour worked between the beginning of the pandemic and this March, which I wish I could say was the end of the pandemic, but of course it isn't. And that'll work out to an average payment of about $3,700 to each uh, employee. And then non-union employees are going to get 3% wage increases for, for 2021. And the mayor has said that she plans to ask for another 3% increase in next year's budget proposal. And those are going to be retroactive to the beginning of this year. It's only uh, a week ago that the mayor unveiled the report of the task force that she convened to see what the city needed to do or ought to do with its uh, pandemic aid. And the mayor said she wanted to do, you know, a, a couple of big transformative things, and she did not identify what those things are. Of course, you know, she has faced criticism that giving increases to public workers might not exactly be a big transformative change. But there you go. This is the uh, it's the first announced uh, spend out of the gate. All right. Finally, uh, this Saturday marks the 20th anniversary of the attacks on September 11th. And we've spent the whole week kind of looking back at that um, through our coverage. And I did want to ask you, uh, let's go back to 2001. Uh, Do you remember where you were on 9-11? Yeah, I was uh, right here in the newsroom. I was about I was about 40 feet uh, away from where I am sitting right now. I was the entertainment editor at the time. And I remember I came in and uh, went into the office of Mary Fran Gleason, who was the, uh, boy, was she the assistant managing editor at that point? And we watched some of the live coverage that was that was coming through. And I can remember standing in the newsroom and uh, watching one of the mounted TVs uh, with the rest of of the feature staff that I worked with, and I remember someone saying, "Those towers are going to come down," and I said, "That's impossible." I was I was almost irate at the very notion, and of course, as we know, that's that's exactly what happened. You know, the the South Tower and and then the North Tower came down in in fairly quick succession. 
And I remember Mark McGuire, who was our um, our TV columnist at the time, said, I got to get out of here. And he and I took a walk around the Times Union's parking lot. And I think it is maybe one of the four final cigarettes I ever smoked in, in my life oh boy. Um, uh, as, as we walked around the parking lot talking about, you know, how, what were we going to do, you know, within the features department to cover this? Because of course it, we knew that it would end up affecting everything. Yeah. I remember that very well. All right. Thank you so much, Casey. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. In the early morning of September 11, 2001, Paul Grondel was on a train heading down the Hudson River from Albany. At the time, he was a reporter for the Times Union, and he was on his way to cover a story. But not the story that he ended up covering. I spoke to him recently about what happened to him that day. So you ended up in Manhattan on the morning of September 11th, kind of coincidentally. Yes, uh, I was going down with Jack Waite, a local architect, his wife Diana Waite. They had finished a long 10-plus year restoration of the historic Tweed Courthouse in Lower Manhattan, Tammany Hall, Boss Tweed was an important political figure in Albany, so I was going down to do a historical feature story on that. Take me through kind of what happened that day. Yeah, so we were going down. I actually didn't have a cell phone then. My wife always reminded me I needed to get a cell phone, but I was old school. I didn't have a cell phone, but I started hearing on the Amtrak early morning train this kind of chatter in the car, you know, Twin Towers hit by a plane, Pentagon hit by a plane. The train stopped at Yonkers and the conductor came on on the intercom and said, uh, we've been ordered to clear the tracks. You have a choice. You have to get off. We'll get a train, get you back to Albany or we're going into Penn Station. We don't know what we're going to encounter. And I could look out the window. I kind of craned my neck and I could see smoke pouring out of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. And uh, I knew that was something I needed to go um, as a reporter, be part of and and, uh, document. So almost everyone got off the train. The waits and I stayed on Penn Station. I said goodbye to them and started, got up to the street. It was strangely empty in Penn Station, which is unheard of at about 10 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday morning. And um, anyway, started going down against this flow of traffic of people coming uptown who had, uh, you know, run and evacuated when the towers had fallen. It took me, I don't know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And as I got further downtown, I could start seeing people with ash covered fleeing uptown. You know, there was very little traffic. It was strange. It was like the whole city stopped. You know, as I got very close to the building number seven, which was still burning, smoking, kind of shuddering. It fell later that day. I started trying to talk to first responders. I saw some firefighters who had gotten out of the buildings, but they knew there were some mass mass casualties. And uh, for the next five days, it was there uh, from ground zero. Tell me more about the journalistic instinct that kind of kicked in on that day. You know, you're starting to make your way down from Penn Station and you're seeing what you're seeing. And obviously none of us had ever witnessed anything like this before, journalist or not. So tell me about the instinct that was kicking in for you. 
you know, you just have an instinct to, to be safe, but to get as close as you can to document the situation. The photo department decided they didn't have a photographer to spend for the whole day. So I had my camera, uh, one roll of film and my notebook, and that was it. Not a digital camera? No, this was film days. <laughs> the amazing thing was on day two, they ran one path train under the Hudson River from New Jersey, and our photographer, Times Union photographer, Steve Jacobs, managed to get on that train. So he was stuck on the New Jersey side for the first day and a half or so. The Times Union and other papers were trying to send people in. There were no more trains coming in. Everything was blocked unless you were an emergency vehicle. You wrote a column kind of looking back on this experience 20 years later, and one of the experiences that you mention is at St. Paul's. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to St. Paul's and what it represented and you know the memories that you have about it? Yes, it was. it's no more than a block or so from where World Trade Center, you know, the uh, periphery. And uh, it's this historic church and uh, um, cemetery. I mean, um, Alexander Hamilton and other people are, are buried there. Amazing history. And that was untouched. I mean, everyone felt like this was a miracle because a lot of those buildings, like the Verizon building, other buildings within a block or two, the Deutsche Bank building were damaged with debris and shut down or, or you know, really uh, compromised and had to be evacuated. And But this was intact. I mean, other than some dust and things, and it was a refuge. It's where the rescue workers came. And then soon there were all kinds of therapists and clergy and massage uh, therapists. And, you know, these were people who had been working on this, you know, toxic, uh, smoldering, dangerous, I mean, shards of metal and glass, this pile that was, you know, 110 story buildings that had pancaked down to a, a huge smoldering pile. And these were people who went on every day, hoping against hope that they'd find survivors, which they did not find, but they did not stop their efforts. And this chapel was a beautiful refuge of um, kind of solace and comfort after a very difficult shift trying to look for survivors. And today, it still kind of remains a, a place where folks go to kind of, you know, remember and exactly. yeah, experience. It's, it's, it's like a shrine. And this was the other um, part of, uh, of the attacks that was remarkable, the public display of grief and memorials. I just wrote about Union Square Park, which we went was was kind of a one of the larger ones, but they were all over the city. I know they were up here in Albany and around too, but right in the city, these were people who lived near Ground Zero and knew people who had died, and and it felt like a small town for that that time. And people wanted to express their grief, but all this material, I mean, it was it was the equivalent of blocks and blocks worth of candles and teddy bears and notes and cards and mementos much of that came to albany the state museum has the largest collection in the world of 9-11 artifacts and remnants i couldn't fit into my column but I, I covered this story for years and years i would always go down for the anniversary interview families but i also did a lot of work on all the material that that the 9-11 uh, museum state museum exhibit has scorched fire trucks, you know, they were finding things like people's uh, ID badges, um, you know, desk phones, all kinds of small artifacts that really bring it home. And that's at the State Museum in Albany. I also went 
with the uh, State Museum people a couple times to Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island, the grim task of the medical examiner's office. They were looking for small fragments of bone and other human remains. I mean, this went on. Uh. I believe there's still a fairly large number that were not um, officially identified. You know, they could not find any remains. And uh, it was a it was a project that, that went on for for a long time. And then I went down when they cleared the site and, and built the 9-11 Museum. I don't know if you've seen those um, those incredible waterfalls that go into a void and they have all the names of, of the people who died around them. It's very moving. Um, I have seen it in pictures and I just haven't really been able to go down there. I, I Someday I will, I hope. Yeah, it's it's really moving. 20 years. What does that mean to you? I think it's significant because um, people do like to kind of reflect on, a, on an anniversary, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 25 will be big, 50 will be big. But again, as somebody who did not individually, you know, lose a family member, it fades. You know, I, I was covering the anniversaries both locally and even down there you know, began to kind of diminish and thin out over the years. I remember going down there on the 13th anniversary or something, and there was there was very little. And each year we'd have to try to put into a calendar all the things happening around here, and, and it became to fade away. You know, there weren't big group memorials anymore. And that's the way I've interviewed, you know, a lot of World War II veterans. They were always, how come nobody remembers Pearl Harbor? How come nobody remembers D-Day or VJ Day? You know, when it gets to be generations, now this is one generation, 20 years, you know, life does move on, unfortunately. So many other things happen, good and bad, in our lives. And it's hard to hold that same place of of loss and grief for that one event. That's the reality of history. It just keeps marching on. After the break... We'll hear from another Times Union reporter with a very different experience of that day and of the years since. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Times Union business reporter Shayla Colon was just three years old on September 11, 2001. Too young to remember it, she says, but it's a day she knows well. It was the day she lost her mother when the South Tower collapsed just before 10 a.m. 20 years later, she's a journalist, 
and has decided to write about the impact that day has had on her life. To get a full account of what happened, she interviewed her father, Ben Cologne. Here's a portion of their conversation. So why don't you just start off by uh, telling me a little bit about mom, your favorite things about her, and what you remember about her. First, I'll start out with the way we met. Your mom used to cut her hair at my sister's beauty salon on Southern Boulevard in the Bronx. So your mother happened to see my picture up on Gloria's work area. Mm -hmm. So she was there with her friend Inez, and she uh, asked my sister Gloria, who is that? So Gloria said, that's my brother, and you might get to meet him because I believe he's on his way here. So when I got there, my sister Gloria tells me somebody had saw my picture and they thought I was cute. So I said, who? So she pointed at your mother, which was sitting under one of those uh, big hair dryers. I go up to to her, and I lifted the hair dryer off her head. And she looked up in shock. So I says to her, hi, um, my name is Ben, and I heard you wanted to, to meet me. So she didn't know how to react. So I said, well, here's my telephone number. If you want, call me. And we exchanged numbers. Two days later, I called her, and she never responded. But she asked her friend whether she should uh, call me. She said I sounded a little too uh, conceited. Mm-hmm. So her friend said, call him. So she called me. And we just kept going from there. And a year later, we basically got married. What were your favorite things about her? Saul was very uh, very intelligent, good-hearted, hardworking, always wanted to have a family. Can you tell me what you remember about the morning of 9-11? Well, we drove down. I drove her down to the World Trade Center. We got there kind of early, so we were having, uh, we had coffee and some rolls. We always used to go to this little uh food carts that was by the World Trade Center. We're sitting there, actually we were talking about, because the day before that, there was a threat of a bomb. So I said, listen, you know they tried to blow this building up 10 years ago. You got to be careful. I said, if you hear of anything, leave the building immediately. I told her, you have two daughters you need to come home to. You have a family, you need to come home, don't wait for anybody. Just, you know, get out the building. Of course, you know, she was so friendly with these people at work that, you know, they cared about each other so much that when that day came, she was waiting for them. A couple of her friends made it out, but she decided to wait for her boss, and uh, her other friends, her other co-workers at the job. Mm-hmm. And that's basically why she, you know, in my opinion, didn't make it out. So how did you find that out? Because I spoke to a friend of hers that made it out. And she told me that she, when she was leaving, she saw Saul on uh, the uh, elevator exchange. There was a, 
a certain floor where the elevators you had to get off and then exchange to go lower mm-hmm. to the lower floors. So she saw a soul there on her way at, out to the elevators. And soul had told her, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for, uh, you know, Matilda or whomever. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what your last words were to her? Well, you should be just say goodbye, I love you, and give a kiss. And she would go to work, and I would go to work. So can you walk me through your actions that morning when you found out about the tower attack? Well, after I dropped her off, I went to work, and then some, at work, they, they drove to a uh, blood drive, a Red Cross blood drive in Queens. So after I had given blood, me and my coworkers had given blood, we're sitting there, and somebody ran in and said, hey, did you just hear? They just, uh, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. I tried calling her. And at first, it was like the lines were busy. Mm-hmm. So I tried several times, and then the lines went dead. So a coworker of mine that was with me that day, his mother worked in the building. So we said, let's go. So we jumped over the car, started driving over the uh, bridge, the Queensboro Bridge. Uh, we made it all the way up to the FDR Drive on the upper level, not too far from the uh, South Street Seaport area. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't go any further because all of the people were coming from that area. And the dust of the bombs and everything and the buildings blowing up was so thick that we couldn't even see past that point. So we had to turn around and go back to our office. That evening, after everything had basically, you know, calmed down, they were saying that they were taking people, you know, to the hospitals and stuff like that. So I started visiting the hospitals in Manhattan and trying to find her. There was no sign of her, no, you know, she wasn't signed in or anything like that. So at that point, I started to get the feeling that she was gone. In the subsequent days when you were searching for her, what were your, what was going through your mind during that time? I was basically preparing myself for the worst and also prepare myself, you know, to basically raise my children, to prepare them for it. So after the buildings collapsed, when was the first time that you actually got through to the World Trade Center? My job, New York City Department of Sanitation had asked me that I want to go and help in the cleanup. But I told them no because I was afraid that something might happen to me while I was down there and my children would have no parents. And the only thing I can concentrate or feel that I can do now is, you know, take care of my children. What kept you going through all of this? What kept me going was that, you know, like, my my daughters, to raise my daughters and, and give them the best possible life that I could 
you know, without my wife being there, but trying to continue with the plans that we had. So that's what kept me going. I mean, it was hard for me, especially in the beginning. I didn't have time, basically, in the beginning to mourn my wife. She was my one and only wife, and, uh, you know, that doesn't go away. It stays with me for the rest of my life. We're coming up on 20 years later. How do you feel about all of it now? I feel that I've been robbed of a good life with my wife. I feel that I did the best I could under these circumstances. And at the same time, you know, keep her memory going. So how have you tried to keep her memory going? By remembering her in my heart. So you had a six-year-old and a three-year-old at home. How did you explain this uh, tragedy to them? Well, at that age, they were basically too young to understand. I mean, I, I, I told them what happened, but they really didn't understand until later on in life. So now you go down there every year for the memorial. What does it feel like going down there every year? Every year I go, I wear my shirt with her name with her name and picture on it. And I just go there to represent my wife. Those people who took my wife paid that same price. They're gone. And all they did was ruin families, 3,000 or more families, outside of ruining their own families. You know, life has never been the same and will never be the same. And, you know, hopefully when I leave the surf, I'll see my wife again. If you could see her right now, 20 years later after the fact, what would you say to her? What would you do? Well, obviously, I'd run up to her, hug her, kiss her, tell her we have two beautiful children and two beautiful grandchildren. And I'm quite sure she knows that. Shayla's mother, Sol E. Cologne, was 39 years old when she died. Shayla, thank you so much for sharing your story. The loss of your mother is truly heartbreaking, and it can't have been easy for you to write this. Um, So can you tell me a little bit about your decision to tell your story in this way at this time? If you ask most people who know me, they might not know this information about me. Or if they do, they will tell you that I'm very private about it. But I just felt that with 20 years passing and everything else that's happening in the world, maybe people should know how other families are still dealing with it because it's something that doesn't go away and it's something that's impacted my life entirely and um, and my dad's life even more. How did you approach it? I figured the best way to approach it was to interview my dad because he had 
the firsthand experience, well, I had a firsthand experience too, but I was three when my mother died. Um, so my dad had a lot more to deal with because his wife was gone and he now had to take care of two little girls on his own. It's so strange. I don't think I've ever gotten emotional in an interview. I, I'm usually pretty good about keeping my composure, but unwillingly definitely lost my composure a couple of times. I just basically approached it by asking him what his experience was, what he remembers and how in the world he was able to keep himself going after the fact. Did you know a lot of what he was going to say going into this, or did you learn some new things about the experience? Growing up, this was something that we didn't often talk about. I did learn some new things. So I learned that my mom had waited, and that's why my dad didn't think she made it out. Um, I'd never known that before. In fact, I knew nothing about her last day until he told me. I learned about their last conversation, which was really heavy for them. They were talking about the previous threats to the World Trade Center. And he, that's when he told me that that day he ran into a friend of hers who made it out of the building. She saw my mom waiting for others. And instead of going downstairs, she waited. Um, and she was never seen after that. Wow. That had to have been very hard to hear. <laughs> and at the same time also, you know, speaks to the character that your mother had, that she was, you know, she was thinking of others, you know, in those last, those last moments, I suppose. Um, do you remember anything about her? Yeah. So, I mean, I have, I call them bright flashes. These just flashes of memory of my mother, uh, very small things again, because I was three, there's only so much I remember, but uh, one that I remember in particular is how she used to sit on this funky red couch of hers. <laughs> it was a very bright red couch, and it had almost like a, a circular pattern on it that for some reason to this day reminds me of Blue's Clues. And she used to sit on that couch with her feet up, and she would watch uh, novelas, which are pretty much Latino uh, soap operas. And she'd fall asleep on that couch. My dad would come and he would wake up my sister and I and he would tell us, like, come on, like, let's go get your mom. And he would tell each of us to grab a pillow and then he would make us sort of march to the living room singing this really weird chant. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we would just utter these words. Um, oh, 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 we will fight. We will fight. And we would just start throwing pillows at her and wake her abruptly from her sleep. And it, now that I think about it, it's so messed up. But, um, but yeah. But that's a, that is a great memory. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I loved, personally, I loved the memory where your dad mentions how they met. I thought that was such a cute story and how he was like, oh, she thought I was really arrogant. That was, that was just wonderful. Wow. Um, what do you personally want folks to keep in mind, you know, whether or not they were directly affected by September 11th in that maybe they lost a loved one or they were there that day, um, or they're just, you know, folks who remember where they were, you know, on that day? What, what would you like them to remember um, on this anniversary? 
I would want them to remember the people that were lost there, uh, the innocent people, because that's essentially what they were. <laughs> they were just people going to work, going about their business, and got pulled into something that probably had nothing to do with them. And the bloodshed and the death and the loss didn't just end, I think, on 9-11. It followed for years after and likely up until now and maybe even past now. Um, we've seen everything that's been going on in Afghanistan. There were lives lost on both sides and no life lost is ever a good thing. The U.S. was able to bring justice to those who died in the towers, uh, and I hope that we can maybe remedy everything else that's happened since then. Well, thank you for sharing your story. It's it's in a powerful story. I highly encourage everyone to go to timesunion.com and read it. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Jessica. In the years since the attacks, Times Union reporters have covered anniversaries and have interviewed and written about many Capital Region residents whose lives had been directly affected by the attacks. Reporters Steve Barnes and Pete DeMola checked in with a few of them prior to the 20th anniversary. Some, like Shayla Cologne, lost loved ones. Others, like Doug Felici, helped in the search and rescue efforts at Ground Zero in the hours and days that followed. I just you know, would like society as a whole to remember, you know, how it felt that day, you know, how, you know, what everybody went through that day. And everybody's got their own story. And I hate to see people forget. Stillwater resident Frank Tatum's mother would occasionally travel downstate to work in her office in the South Tower, where she died in the collapse. You know, I have to start logging on Facebook, you know, when I start seeing, you know, because I start seeing pictures of the towers exploding all across my feet all over the place. And it's like, you know, who really wants to see, like, the exact time their mom died all the time in front of them? Former Kinderhook resident Ann Mulderry lost her son, who worked at an investment firm. At this 20 years, I'm saddened, but I'm not disillusioned. I'm not defeated. I know that every day there are good people struggling against the odds, maybe. But they're struggling nevertheless, and they don't give up. Former U.S. Coast Guard member Carlos Perez lives in Niskayuna now, but he helped evacuate half a million people via boat from Lower Manhattan that day. I mean, as far as 20 years, i tell you the truth, you know, like, to me, you know, every year that it's happened, that it happens, it's like, a, it's like it's, it was yesterday. The crew that was together at that time that responded you know, we have a little Facebook group and, you know, we we, uh, we call each other and message each other, you know, every morning, you know, just to kind of, put, you know, a, a wellness check, a buddy check, you know, make sure everything's okay. Uh, this year we're going to have a, a, an actual um, a reunion for the 20th, 20 year anniversary and uh, we're going to head down to Station New York. They're going to have us uh, speak to the new crews that are around and kind of share our stories, you know, with them. Memorial ceremonies are planned this weekend across the region and the country for victims of the September 11th attacks. (music) 
All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Paul Grondel, Shayla Cologne, Pete DeMola, and Steve Barnes for their reporting and contribution to this episode. <laughs>